Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas and stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. We hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew goes to the movies. We're looking at what happens when our favorite books are adapted for the big screen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the course of 10 episodes, we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between the two mediums and what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a real stinker. So grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. Well, hey, friends, and welcome back to yet another episode of Bibliophiles. I am your host, Ian Andrews, joined, as always, by the great luminaries of the Western tradition, <laughs> Adam, Megan, Missy, and Emily. How are you all today? Feeling luminous. Feeling, feeling shiny. Luminous? Yeah, feeling, luminous. <laughs> feeling luminous. You guys, I, we, I feel like the whole, the whole season has been building to this moment. I'm so excited to talk with you all about the great. War and Peace, by which I mean, of course, the BBC adaptation, the miniseries, six parts that takes the War and Peace story in hand. And Andrew Davies, the man who wrote it. Now, he's not the director, so we'll talk about the director as well. But Andrew Davies is a is a fantastic screenwriter who had a difficult task, as I'm sure you could all agree, adapting one of the longest works ever written to the screen. But before we dive into all of that, I have a very appropriate icebreaker question for you. I would like for each of you to cast... War and Peace, exclusively from the members of our podcast. Oh, my goodness. Now, this means you're going to have to decide on five most important characters. I was taking it the other way around. Yeah, I, like, I didn't. Just pick a character for each member of the podcast. Yeah, yeah the yes. most appropriate character for each member of the podcast. I will podcast. allow it. I'll allow it. Who wants to go first? Emily, you should. You said you're ready. Yeah, go ahead, Emily. I'm mostly ready. I think that Megan is Natasha. Ha ha! <laughs> <laughs> I think that I knew it. I knew it. I had to be. I had to be. Oh, by the way, that makes me Sonia. So we'll start there. No. no. Oh yeah. Oh my no, I'm 100 percent Sonia. Um, are not. Megan is the bright luminary, and I'm like the sh- <laughs> shadowy, like bitter one. Raven in the little shadow in the background. <laughs> Faithful one in the background. What goes without saying is that nobody's Maria. Let's be honest. (laughs) No, no one is Maria. Well, actually, anyway, I think Ian is Andre. Mm. And I know that you really want to be Pierre, but you're not. You're Andre because (laughs) I wouldn't have cast myself as either of those. Oh, really? Well, the reason I chose Andre over Pierre is that Pierre has a really hard time with indecision and that is not something <laughs> that you have struggle with. You no, very much true. know your own mind and so does Andre. I think that dad is Papa Rostov. I thought that too. Oh. Yep. <laughs> and I do actually think that mom might be Mariette. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Did I fall off my horse at the end? No, that's that's Andre's dad. Yeah. Oh, you mean Papa Rostov, right, right, right. Papa Rostov is the happy one. The overly generous. Giving and giving. And giving. Yeah. Okay. Who's always poor? <laughs> he lets his son beggar him, but you know, it's still like the the father in the prodigal son story. Even though he's penniless. Arms wide open. <laughs> it's okay. Sometimes oh, that happens. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. That is so interesting. Okay. Does anyone who who wants to go next? I mean, I, I have so many things to say about that. 
<laughs> well, I think I know. I think I know what I would say. I would cast Ian as Nikolai, actually, because um, of the yeah, that's fun-loving spirit and the general joie de vivre. You know, I think he's that that strikes me as an Ian quality. I would also cast Dad as Papa Rostov because of I mean I think maybe because of the similar elements. I think you would be father and son <laughs> in the in the book as well. I think Mom would be the the battle axe character who's got the spirit of Russia. <laughs> I think I think she would be that lady, but I can't remember her name right now. It's Ma- also Maria, it's, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Maria yes. Dimitra. But it's that one. It's like the cool Maria that everybody she's wants to follow. She's not in the miniseries. Follow. Yeah, she's not in, yeah. the, in the miniseries, but I think she should be, and I think Mom would play her. Battle axe, spirit of Russia. Yeah, I love that. I really do. I'll take and it. And I thought that Emily would be Natasha, so this is kind of fun. <laughs> Definitely not, no. I don't don't have the, the raw voice? stuff. Hey, oh, sorry, doghouse for you. Doghouse, doghouse with me. It's the doghouse. Oh, my goodness. Is that everyone, Megan? Did you get through all five? I, what who did are you? Know? Oh, wait, you didn't cast I? yourself. Oh, I didn't cast myself. I forgot to cast myself. I would, I'd be the director. <laughs> That's not okay. Fair enough. Okay, mom, who's it going to be? Oh, goodness. I don't know that I, I, I needed more time to prepare for this because, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, th- this is impossible. This is why I texted you 15 impossible. minutes before the episode and told you I know, what the icebreaker was going to be. I didn't look at my text. Oh, oh, I didn't look at I that. see how that went. My head was down. So, <laughs> so I love the things that you've said, except I'm not really fond of casting myself as a battle actor. <laughs> <laughs> I did that mean it in a mind. nice way, I'm in not. like a spirited way. Even can, before... can a battle axe be nice? Okay, let I don't me, know let how me I pitch feel it to you. That. She's very rich. Everyone respects her and wants to be near her. When she walks into a room, they all jump to her beck and call. She's and the truth. She tells the truth, the truth fearlessly. Sayer. That's what makes yeah. her an awesome battle house. Right. So she and she's the she's a truth sayer to kings and czars. Wow. <laughs> that all Mom, the rules of this like game you. the rules of this game say you can't be offended at people's choice, okay? That is I just I wrote a new rule just now and I think it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Will it make you feel better I'm if, slice, in my version, I have to be Helene? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, that would, that would be horrible. I was this wondering is... if anybody would cast themselves as Helene. She's awful, isn't she? This is getting uh, ridiculous. This game has gone on long enough. This game has gone on long, on long, enough. long enough. Moving on, moving on. But you didn't go. No. How come I Megan know, and I, I are the only ones who evaded that? Yeah, everyone evaded Ian, you it. have to go. I have to go? Well, I think I think a lot of the casting has been appropriate. Although I would have cast myself as either Nikolai or Papa Rostov. Be- I do think Nikolai is better than yeah. Andre on second thought. Yeah, Andre doesn't make any sense to me. I was just thinking I was I wanted to put you in a spotlight, and I was thinking about the differences between Pierre and Andre, but I forgot about Nikolai. That makes more sense. I actually think that there's not really a character that quite works for Dad. Yeah. So what I'll say instead. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, you you, <laughs> you have elements of both, both of the principal. Peace. You, <laughs> <laughs> you have elements of both Pierre and Andre, but I don't think it works for. So the way I cast it is differently than the rest of you have been doing, and I love the way that you took it, which is whose personality lines up with who, and that's great. But I actually think you would play. Yeah, in the, good. In the in a film adaptation, I think you would play Papa Rostov. And it's not because of your personality characteristics so much as it's because the role matches your physique and demeanor when and i get to age. wear when i get to wear that hat yes yeah the I excellent get to wear the hat. Cap. older yeah but you <laughs> do wear my you, jammies for the whole series <laughs> you in your middle 30s totally could have played andre 
Too brooding. Yeah, I agree. You're not a brooder. Nope. You can do brooding. I could do it, maybe. I maybe I think could convince actually, you, but I if we think this way, I think Dad could have played Pierre. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Soft and warm it's and hard to imagine. You know? <laughs> it's hard to imagine a Pierre other than Paul Dano, though. No, you're, well, you're <laughs> yeah. so right. Yeah, I think I might have cast you, Ian, as Pierre. I think that could work as well. Okay. I Except for the thing that Emily the mentioned soft about the, Yeah. Yeah, but he could totally play that. Well, that's a different question. Well, uh, happy-go-lucky never met a stranger. That works. Yeah. Wrestle a bear, I believe it. I feel like we're getting to know each other pretty well <laughs> right now. I should ask questions like this more often. This is pretty good. This is going great. Could I see you drunkenly hanging out a window? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and with that, we're going to move on to our discussion of the War and Peace miniseries. Now, this connects in a strange way to the previous episode because Andrew Davies was also the screenwriter on the Pride and Prejudice miniseries. So his bona fides were established by the time he turned to, well, a pair of great epics. He turned to uh, War and Peace first. And then on the back of that success, he also did Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. So, so a guy that tackled, he's not afraid of difficult material. Let's put it that way. I just learned this morning that Andrew Davies is 85 years old. So we've jumped from the, the Kenneth Branaghs of the world into the, the reigning and maybe their reign is fading kings of screenwriting <laughs> when we turn to Andrew Davies. But I'm assuming that you have all seen this, this miniseries, correct? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. A couple times. Yes, oh, yes. So hit me with some initial thoughts. What were you expecting going into watching this miniseries? I'd never read War and Peace, so I was expecting Andre to live. <laughs> <laughs> Great you know, I recently <laughs> recommended this series to someone and I was so excited and I was like, you're going to love it. It's so good. And you're going to love Paul Dano. He's the best. And they came back to me and were like, um, James Norton died and it was not okay. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Uh, that yeah, that, that shook me up the first time too. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't that the great. answer you were looking for, but that's what I have for that's you. That's a great answer. I'm <laughs> What about the rest of you? I will admit to wondering how in the world they were going to manage to take all of the philosophy of history that oh, yeah. I think War yeah. and Peace is justly famous for and depict that in a movie. I mean, it brings up the same question we've been asking since the beginning of the season, right? What do you do? Do you do a voiceover of somebody reading the, the novel? Do you put it in the mouth of someone who wasn't actually speaking it in the original story? How do you pay homage to what is, I don't know, 40% of Tolstoy's words in the no, novel. That might be low, but yeah, it's a decent estimate. <laughs> 60%. <laughs> well, it's light on plot I, in places. Yeah. yeah. I, I will say the the main thing, so I expected them to hit the, the romantic relationships really, really hard, which they did, of course. Right. And I thought that in doing that, it would be really reductive because in the original story, Tolstoy puts the story in the service of the larger idea that he has about history, right. basically an experiment in which he's able to contemplate what is it that moves history? Is it great men or philosophers or artists and thinkers? Is it the little guys who come against their will and foil their plans? Or is it, is it an X factor, he calls it? What is it? What is it that actually is responsible for the movement of history forward when there's so many bees in the hive, right? And I, I, I'm not sure that the miniseries manages to make that question clear 
they really do major in the love story, which is lovely. I loved everything about it. I thought the cinematography was fantastic and their ability to compress 14 books plus two epilogues into, what is it, like eight episodes? Six. Si- no, I think it's eight. No. Six. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... We can argue about that later, but <laughs> we don't need it to. We can look at we can relatively look it up, which brief. It was six. <laughs> a window <laughs> into our family dynamic, eight. ladies and gentlemen. Oh, uh, here we go. Welcome to the end. <laughs> I seriously did. I just got on Amazon Prime and looked, and there are eight. There are eight installments. Maybe we don't actually know how it ends. Ian, maybe we didn't watch. Did it you all. never see the end? <laughs> no, I definitely have seen it. All. <laughs> So you were saying that, right, Missy? I was just saying that <laughs> they did a, a brilliant job of condensing the action of the story, but I think it's very difficult without some sort of voiceover like what you're talking about, Adam, to zoom out in a way that reflects the larger questions that the story was written to discuss. Well, I, you know what I would say about that? I totally agree. And I was wondering how they were going to do it. And I love the way you put it, that in the novel, they put the romantic relationships in the service of this philosophical discussion. I think Andrew Davies does a neat switcheroo of that, and he manages to put philosophical questions to which he alludes every once in a while Mm -hmm. in a variety of ways in the service of the relationships that make a movie. And, and I, I realize that it's a, it's a different thing than Tolstoy is trying to do. Cause I think your characterization of what Tolstoy is after in his novel is exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It's an experiment, right? He's going to say, here's my idea about the, the, the wheels that move history. Let's try it out. Try this theory out in this crucible of human relationships, like a Petri dish. Right. And I think the, the screenplay does the opposite thing. Let's try out, let's see how these unspoken and hinted at assumptions about whether Napoleon can actually affect the world, you know, whether Andre's uh, impulses have anything to do with anything. Let's take these unspoken assumptions and see how they work out in a series of personal relationships. That's the thing that makes a movie go. Right. And I loved it. I thought it was maybe a different thing, but... If you've read the novel, you're, yes. you're watching this miniseries going, oh, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. That actually works. Here's the other thing, though. I, lo- I love that comment because it, it actually serves two kinds of people. If you've read the novel, you say, oh, this is great. And also, it's kind of a balm to your soul, depending on how recently you read the novel, because because the philosophical ruminations and the theory of history and all of that does take up a lot of pages of time where you're pining after Natasha. I mean, like Natasha is supposedly the main character of this freaking story and she's in it for like nine pages. Yeah. So she's not seeing the main all character of that condensed is. and he also argue, very she, absent. Also very absent. So, so seeing it all condensed is, is really fun as someone who has read the, the novel, but then also it provides an entree to the novel for people that that wouldn't otherwise pick it up because having seen it already and going to the novel which is the way that I did it I saw the miniseries first and then I picked up the novel it made me excited and sustained me through some of the longer uh, meatier passages mm-hmm. cuz you knew it was coming and it was going to be worth it I knew it was coming and it was going to be totally worth it so yeah I think it I think it's it's double edged sword in that way I think I would go one step further and maybe it's just to be fun conversation piece but I think that the movie almost improved upon the book actually i think this adaptation <gasps> improved upon tolstoy's classic in that it chose what kind of a genre this was going to be mm. and tolstoy mm. never did tolstoy tried to do <laughs> two books at the same time and sometimes with very little transition between the two and arguably with violence done to one or the other at a given moment 
and he never did separate them. And I think Andrew Davies said, what a great companion novel. Read it if you'd like. It's about the love story, ladies and gentlemen. It's about personal relationships. And in fact, this story of relationships is what I'm good at. I think Tolstoy acknowledges that that is his his greatest strength in works like Anna Karenina. And in War and Peace, he gets distracted by a side project. And I think that his greatest gifts don't shine quite as clearly as a result. What do you think of that? Shots that fired. Well, no, I think but, it's blasphemy. Well, it's blasphemy. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Megan has her her uh, her bona fides right. You're right. You've you've read read it recently, right? Yes. Megan? Yep. I have read it recently, and it's well, we've read parts of it recently. We started it almost right. two years ago. Some of it has <laughs> it's a little foggy now. I just I don't mean to say anything negative about the second book that he is also writing. The one about the philosophy right. of history is fascinating and well thought out and articulate, and his analogies and that well he written. uses are lovely and they touch on a variety of different studies scientific and mathematical and historical and all of these it's a very well-rounded treatment of the philosophy of history and causes i just think that he tried to do two books at once well if you're going to say that you'd have to say that melville fails too because of all the cytology chapters Uh, but i haven't decided what i think about that yet Well, we've talked about Melville uh, in Bibliophiles before, and one of the things we've said is if if you discard the cytology chapters, you miss a major trope in the story because it fits in with with the discussion of the search for God, right, in the whale. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't really dismiss the cytology chapters. They're there for a purpose. And I kind of think that... And yet, when I was in college studying it with the Hillsdale College professor, he cut them out and did not assign them. And we read the whole thing without... Or rather, he assigned one or two representative chapters and cut a lot of others. In in other words, he needed an editor to say, this right here, this will do your symbol justice moving along. Don't you think that they did that for the purpose of time because it's a survey class and that wasn't the only novel you were going to study all year long? No, he gave a whole lecture justifying himself on cutting out mm-hmm. the cetology chapters. Oh, well, see, I'd have to go to a <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you would. I have no would. doubt about that. <laughs> I have no trouble imagining that at all. Trying to imagine that in my mind. But yep, no, no, got no. It. To Maria, Maria to Dimitriana. There she is, ladies and gentlemen. Battle axe number battle one. The battle axe. <laughs> yes, we are. So to, to pull it back together, though, and draw a bridge between the two of you, I think Megan's comment is well taken, and I, I sympathize with it because I'm trying to steer the ship of our other podcast, How to Eat an Elephant, which you should listen to, by the way. It's really fun. To its to its just conclusion at the end of War and Peace, and it was it is it's been a minute since page one, but I think and she's I don't right. Mean any disrespect either? Yeah, not at all. It's brilliant and wonderful, but I see, I see what you mean, Megan. And I also think that it probably wouldn't have the stature that it has now if it were only a a, a romance novel, a love story. So I'm glad in any case that he tried both of those projects at once. But it sure does seem like two different projects. And I think Andrew Davies made a good decision in majoring in plot instead of majoring in ruminations on historical philosophy. Well, and well, in any case, would have had a hard time trying to do both of those things, well, given I wonder, the genre. I, I would love to, to have you guys think of if there's a way, a possible way to give a nod to all of the historical ideas, the, that portion of the meditation through some fancy footwork. I think he does. I think he does too. I was going to say, So what is it if he does it? What Go ahead, it? Emily, and I want to follow you. Well, I I am the great defender of Tolstoy on our podcast, but I will get off my high horse for a second to agree with Megan and say that I think that 
he actually, Tolstoy actually does already a really excellent job of discussing his ideas in the plot that he does give us. And not only does Andrew Davies give us glimpses of Napoleon, who's actually a character in the story, and Kutuzov, who's the hero of yep. Russia, and who's also very much characterized in the miniseries very yes. well by yes. the yeah. excellent Brian Cox. Mm-hmm. But the whole scene with Pierre, the one that comes to mind that I think really digs into Tolstoy's ideas of history is when Pierre decides that he's going to assassinate Napoleon. And he actually, Andrew Davies leans into that way more than Tolstoy does. And his idea that he's going to say, he's going to be the savior of Russia. That's exactly what Tolstoy was talking about. Yep, it is. It's the, it's the experiment idea. I'm going to take my idea. I'm going to put it in a character and we're going to see what happens. But I was going to say the, the scene where Napoleon is frustrated and he's standing there with all his advisors and just in a rage because he can't get what he what he wants and what his personality is used to demanding and getting. Yep. When he's in Moscow, you mean? Yeah, exactly. He's about to turn back and give up in Moscow. And I think that scene and the scenes like it that have Napoleon in them, and then the one where Brian Cox's character, whose name I can't remember, a perfect little foil of of great men, supposedly great men, leaning back and going, Well, there it is, my victory. Right. Or, well, there it is, mm-hmm. my defeat. And it's been yep. handed to me by the God of war. Yeah. Fate. Oh, yeah, the, exactly. he did a really good job with the scene where Kutuzov learns that Napoleon is leaving yes. Moscow where he yes. falls to his knees and gives he thanks to God. Saved. Or yeah. when the, when the, before the battle of Bord, you know, when the train of Russian Orthodox priests is marching by and he gets off of his horse. That's also, that's extrapolated. That isn't, it's very briefly mentioned, but not nearly highlighted in the text. Well, I think that minute when he realizes that Napoleon is retreating, before he gets on his knees, he sinks back in his chair, if I remember right, and his body goes limp Mm -hmm. and he relaxes into the realization of his victory. And you realize if you, if you know what's going on, he has just beaten Napoleon without getting out of his chair. Right. By a passive way. Yeah. Yeah. It's passive. It's utterly passive. In fact, his whole body goes slack. And I think that's. If you've read the novel and you know what Tolstoy is after, that's the the screenwriter and the director saying, this is what we can do in this direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just telling Ian before we got on that. (laughs) So before Paul Dano went to drama school, he was a Russian literature major for a hot second. And when they gave him the screenplay, his favorite novel is Anna Karenina. So when they gave him the screenplay for War and Peace, he like... He had never read War and Peace, so he read War and Peace, and then he read the screenplay, and like, and that was before he was willing to commit to it, and he wanted it to be up to snuff before he would commit to it, and he decided that it was. I think that's pretty cool. That is cool. Wow. Well, I want to watch it again (laughs) with that in mind, because of course, when I watched it the first couple of times, I was looking only at plot and the love story, which is what really plays best. You're right about that, Megan. That, you know, we, it's a plot, dri- movies are plot driven anyway. And what we want to see is the action and the developing love story. But I would like to watch it again with an eye to how the director and the screenplay writer are treating this element of history. Because yeah. you're right. They they don't, I mean, obviously there are lots of battles. There are lots of scenes with Napoleon and Kutuzov. But I don't know. I mean, I didn't come away from the, the screenplay thinking, 
yeah, yeah, they really covered that issue about history. <laughs> but it's not what I was really watching for either. I was looking for the satisfaction of the romantic story. No, you, you come away thinking, why can't we wear headscarves like right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wish exactly. I could wear a headscarf. <laughs> I mean, have, I, yeah. have I ever actually been at an outdoor dinner that was that comfortable? Can't imagine. I don't think so. No. Could I get away with going around in my jam jams? <laughs> yeah, jam jams. Have you guys finished... War and Peace yet and How to Eat an Elephant. I don't mean for this to be a spoiler, oh, do but not what spoil you it. already mentioned oh my goodness. about... <laughs> I'm not talking about action. Two years. I'm talking about something that Missy. dad said. Two, year, two years. If you spoil two it years. now... This would be an epic I'm spoiler. Not gonna, All right. I'm not going to spoil right. the ending, except to say that Pierre Bezukov, whatever, <laughs> Pierre Bezukov still thinks he's the center of history by the end. It's astonishing. I was rereading today just in... in to get ready for our podcast, just kind of looking back at my notes and looking back at what I'd underlined. And there was a, there was a line in the second epilogue where he literally thinks that he has changed the whole world <laughs> because of his actions. Well, it's because that he did, like, there's a line in, I think Tolstoy has an introduction himself to the text and he says, this is not an epic this is not a poem. This is not a novel. This is something in it's between. An experiment. I'm yeah. trying to develop a new artistic genre. And basically his thought was that if this were, if the novel were truly a representation of real life, there would not actually be introduction, rising action, climax, denouement, conclusion, that so it would he, instead be like a funnel with little climaxes and we would end hmm. in the we would end unfinished and i think that that's a great idea but if you're making it a mini series your <laughs> you're probably <laughs> well yeah not, on a happy note unless you want like a super postmodern feeling mini series which is totally valid but also wouldn't correctly represent tolstoy i don't think then you're not going to do that. Right. He might have wanted no. to do something else, but the novel is a novel when you get right Well, down whatever he was, he wasn't a postmodernist, you know. Right. He was definitely uh, kind of angling for a providential view of history in War and Peace. Yeah. So I, I think, think he, right. he was probably looking for verisimilitude in that, right? Because, probably. you know, unless the character dies at the end, we don't have his whole story. We get a chunk of life, which is also a commentary on history that maybe we can't get far enough <gasps> away to really see the hand that's moving everything and everyone. What do you guys think about the genre of miniseries that makes story or adaptation different than with film? I love it. You don't have to compress, right? Yeah, I, it allows them to elaborate. And, you know, we kind of talked about this when we talked about Pride and Prejudice because we were looking at the Keira Knightley version versus the BBC first version, right? That's longer. And we, I, I remember saying something like they both, they're, they're different. It's, you can't really compare them. Like they're like comparing apples and oranges because they're both wonderful, but they serve different purposes. And the truth is the miniseries allows them to elaborate and to spend time developing characters and moments. And it gives them more opportunity, I think, to develop motifs in their scenes. I think that it does a great job. It's a great choice for Tolstoy because of what you said a minute ago, Emily, his goal is to have many little climactic moments and an episode of a miniseries should have its own story arc and should be contributing to the larger story arc, which is a great choice for him. Yeah. Yep. The episodic element. Absolutely. 
Yeah, there's always that tension in a series, right? Between the the shape of today's episode and the the arc of the whole. I mean, uh, the arc of the season, right? And then the arc of the show as a whole. There's there's concentric story arcs that they're always working with. Yeah, the fact that Anatole Karagin can be a character that just makes your blood boil and he's so, so present for the first two episodes and then you forget all about him for multiple episodes in a row really makes... <laughs> that he comes well, on back yes, around. The fact that he comes back around again is really powerful because there's time enough mm-hmm. and conflict enough of another sort to let you forget mm. about him. I think that's that was a great... It was really well done. I would never have forgotten about him if it had only been two hours, you know, because he was such right. a yes. horrifying villain at the beginning. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, I agree. That's a really good point. Hmm. It's interesting. It, that episodic idea, I went back to the int- the introduction and to the table contents in my War and Peace to see, to remember, because it's been a while. It's probably been, I don't know, maybe a decade since I read this. Mm-hmm. Novel, you mean? Yeah. I, I read War and Peace twice, but in close succession, one after the other, and um, then put it down and I thought about War and Peace a lot. Because and I watched you like this suffering? What, what in the world were you doing to yourself? That you oh, would I, was, read War and I was getting Peace my twice. master's degree and well, it so was required to, yeah, oh, okay. to read I it twice. First, Because the first time that you read something, you're really basically looking at plot, right? Not the way we're the reading it. <laughs> well, if you read it five, five chapters, chapters at a time, at a time once a week. For two years. <laughs> and going really deep and all of that sort really, of thing. Really, really deep and slow, know, yeah. That counts for sure. I read it um, pretty fast. Twice. Twice, Yeah. And the second time, because I already knew the plot, I was able to skip over plot elements and notice artistry and things like the argument that he's developing and, you know, right. that kind of stuff. Yep. Get but your anyway, eyes on when, the historical philosophy. Yeah. And when I was looking at the table of contents today, you know, I had forgotten how many books are there in War and Peace. I noticed and remembered that they're arranged in books the way mm-hmm. an epic would be, right? And wondered if the books correlated with the episodes, like, you know, mm-hmm. they've they put all of book one and episode one. And the answer is no, except for a couple of incidents. First of all, there are 14 books and two epilogues. And I maintain there are eight episodes (laughs) on Amazon Prime at least. IMDB IMDB says six, but it's because it's six. six. Okay. I'm totally going to look that (laughs) up. Like right. What I was trying to tell you is that I had, I was looking at it as I said it to you in the first place. I said, there are six episodes while verifying my own information from the internet. (laughs) Well, how is that possible when I just went through it this afternoon? There are sometimes special content that we don't know. Chad, you can either leave this in or cut it. Oh, I want you to leave it in. This is a huge (laughs) argument. Okay, so I'm just saying here I am on Amazon Prime looking at the Paul Dano War and Peace Uh season one, and they Mm -hmm. have it divided up into. I kid you not, eight episodes. Take a look at the special features. Are they special features? No, they aren't. Episode seven, Pierre and Andre fight on the front of Russia's greatest struggle against Napoleon, dot, dot, dot. Episode eight, in the shadow of tragedy, Natasha struggles to see a way forward. It's, I'm not, I'm not making it up. I'm looking at it. Go look at it on Amazon Prime. That's subdivided from its original. It's IMDb that says that there are six and Amazon Prime says there are eight. So She's right, right? you guys. I'm looking at Amazon. It says eight episodes. Yeah, I looked at both IMDb and Amazon, so I don't know who's right there. That is crazy. They've divided it differently <laughs> on those two websites. That's wild. Just FYI. But what I'm the reason I'm saying this <laughs> is because I went through thank you, I know. The the reason I'm saying that <laughs> is because I went through and compared each episode's contents 
with the, the table of contents in the original text to see how he managed to combine and what kind of artistic decisions he made. And it was really interesting to notice where he compressed and where he extrapolated, right? Where he, where he took his time, right? So like, for example, let's see, the one that talks about book eight, episode five is just book eight, nothing but book eight. It's expansive in its treatment of book eight. Whereas episode eight, covers books 11 through 15 and the epilogues, the, the epilogue, epilogue one and two. So he really like goes the distance in the last yeah, I have a lot of theories that will sound bitter if I say them out loud for why that is. <laughs> Let's hear it. Well, I think that Tolstoy roundabout book 15 or whatever that is begins to repeat himself over and over and over again. So much so that in a podcast where you're taking five chapters at a time, you can't help but say exactly what you said last week and again the next week, etc. <laughs> so I think Andrew you Davies reads along infidel. and he says, we have heard this. This is true. It is another beautiful <laughs> way of saying the same thing. Let us portray it uh, once again. and well, ladies and gentlemen, and move on. <laughs> Sorry. I told you it would sound better. I warned you. I want you. I you was sound very like a woman specific. that's read this too slowly. I have read it well. <laughs> very well indeed. That is awesome. Okay. I'll so an interesting it. detail about Andrew Davies, who's the writer for this show, is that he, he gets some credit for kind of starting the move towards long-form novelizations mm -hmm. on screen. Uh -huh. um, he wrote, he was a co-writer on the original House of Cards show, released oh, wow. in 1990 on British television, that the House of Cards you all probably thought in your mind, yeah. Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright, was based upon. Hmm. And the House of Cards starring Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright is one of the first stream and binge heavy dramas that was released to, onto Netflix. So he's actually connected with kind of the birth of the art form in some, in some ways, which I think is really interesting. I have often said that I think TV drama is the novel of our era. Not that I want people to stop writing novels because I love them dearly, but but it's it might be my favorite way to watch a movie. Hmm. Quick question: Has anybody seen the the old treatment of War and War and Peace, um, the classic movie with um, Audrey, Audrey Hepburn? Hepburn? I have not. Oh. I've seen. I know of it. I've seen scenes in it. Uh, I can't remember the stirring climactic or the Karagan episodes, so probably oh. not. I think it'd be interesting to compare the two. I've, I've not seen it myself. It's black and white, interested. isn't it? I think it's black I and white. I think it is. Yeah, I think it's a black and white treatment. But now I want to go watch it. A lot of low ceilings, if I remember right. Yeah. Don't know why I remember that. And luminous beauty because of Audrey Hepburn and all. Yeah. We haven't talked about the score, the musical score. And this I thought true. that that was one of the things in the BBC adaptation <laughs> of this that was most brilliant. I loved it. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's I particularly like that as you swoop in over the battlefield covered in fog, what you hear in the background is a chorus of Russian men saying, la, yes. la, la, la. <laughs> And we love it so much that when Emily and I are hanging out for a weekend, every now and then, <laughs> every now and then we'll just try to turn it on in the background and see if the other person notices. Just really, really quiet. <laughs> and then just turn it up nice and slow until suddenly Russian men are shouting this song at you. No. It's so satisfying. It's a little bit like being, what is it? What's it called? Rick rolled like Rick rolling somebody, <laughs> but, but actually with war and peace. It's the way nerdy version of Rick rolling. You guys are so funny. 
<laughs> I loved it because he managed to give a nod to Russian culture and at the same time create this drama and suspense that is consonant with the epic nature of the story. Oh, yeah. Um, there, there were these plaintive and haunting vocals uh, that foreshadowed what was going to come and Absolutely. let a kind of gravitas to the drama that was going on on, on the screen that made you want to ask the big questions mm. the, about the universals that he was contemplating mm. through this love story. Mm. Maybe not about history as a, as a genre, but as, uh, you know, what's the meaning of life and, you know, what's a good love and what good is love. All these kinds of things are like floating in the air with the music that Martin Phipps writes for it. Man, that's a I great think- comment. I, I Sorry to cut you off, Emily, but I want to I want to jump on that for a minute because the way that you put it a second ago, um, lens gravitas, I think in some senses, a musical score grants a film or a TV show its weight. I really do think that that's true. Mm-hmm. And I'll take as my case in point, Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Which is arguably a mediocre ripoff of Dune. And yeah. I think without John Williams, it may not have been nearly as popular. Oh, well, and I'll, I'll take your Star that. Wars and I'll raise you Cyrano, which in the last episode you suggested failed, at least in part, because of the tone deafness of the score, right? I think you're right. I think you're exactly mm-hmm. right. It, it, that's a really integral part of things. It's hard to wrap your head around sometimes, but you've done it. Well, it does. It grants, it makes, it elevates the whole piece. And I think Phipps did a brilliant job. Possibly because of what dad mentioned in our last episode, that music is now integral to the art form and it didn't used to be. Now it's in every single right. scene rather than only mm-hmm. in heightening moments. And so it's mm. it is. another language that we're speaking at the same time. I love that you said it gives a cultural nod to the story because that's actually a really, that's a tight line that they had to walk because it's a British miniseries. Mm-hmm. So, and like, you know, like we talked about last time, that comes with its own set of preconceptions. It's a historical drama, a period piece done by the BBC. So immediately you're just this side of a bonnet drama. So, and this is like the work of, of Russian literature, culture and and history. And the whole cast minus Paul Dano is British. So they had to find some way to make it essentially Russian. And I do think Without that you're right. That's a stereotype. do that. Although they do have plenty right. of the really furry it hats. It's a little so stereotyping. It's, it's there for you. There's lots of furs. <laughs> yes, lots of furs. Oh, great. Spectacular but, but, furry hats. But you guys are all making that that statement about music that is, it's not more importantly than locating it in a particular culture. They're linking the music, the score to the the thematic Right, the thematic heft of the movie. It reminds me of the way Boz Lerman did it in The Great Gatsby that we talked mm, about yeah. in an yeah. earlier episode, right? Controversially, but but I think the score there was linked to a thematic statement, maybe regardless of culture. Right? I think he used American music primarily and he was telling an American story, but the point of the music there was to say, was to make a cultural statement. And I think the score of this War and Peace miniseries is doing a similar thing. I wonder if that's not true broadly when it comes to adaptations. I wonder if it's a conscious thing for the screenwriter and the director to say, or the screenwriter to say, I'm in charge of telling the plot. The director to say, I'm in charge of motifs. And the, the composer to say, I'm in charge of high-minded thematic ideas. Uh, maybe. Hmm. Because and music speaks and, without words. Yeah, at least right, a exactly. One, yeah. yeah, maybe a successful <laughs> pairing of those three roles goes a little bit a little bit like that. I mean the Lord of the Rings trilogy which has come up in a couple other places is a great example of that as well. 
where the where the screenwriter's coming along and saying, okay, let's take the important moments. And Peter Jackson says, I got this with the costumes and the landscape of, of New Zealand, and we can make it feel this way. And then the brilliant musical score comes in and just put, ties a bow around the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Who was trying to make a comment that I talked through? Megan. I was just thinking of Jane Austen and thinking of the composer's role as as really communicating the thematic heft. And I think we see that done well in the Andrews Davies Pride and Prejudice. But I also think that the pianoforte is like the only thing that's played in the background ever in a Jane Austen film. And that as a result, it actually loses its power in some adaptations. Um, I don't know how Andrew, yeah. Andrew Davies avoided that or Dario Marianelli, who... Who uh, mm. who composed for the most recent one? It's still a lot of piano music, but he manages to have it be deeper. It that one seems almost stereotyped for Regency era. Oh, I think there are definitely stereotypes. That's so sure. when Greer Garson plays Lizzie Bennet in I don't know what it is, the forties or whatever, she's a harpist. Did you guys know? Really? That? She doesn't play the piano forte. She plays the harp. Wow. Interesting. And, and every set in the looks drawing like, room. Yeah, in the drawing room. <laughs> the drawing every set room. looks like it's a it's a set of the super rich. I mean, it's a there's nothing lowbrow about it. That mm. is crazy. Yeah. That's free. I didn't charge <laughs> that. That's a cool detail. detail. Yeah, I, I yeah. think it's You're interesting welcome. because I, I guess I've never really thought about music in a scene doing anything more than increasing atmosphere. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I think in this in this instance, I see it actually developing some of the major oh my tropes in the show. You're so right. There's one of my legend. So I am, when I am hanging out with my buddies and we're staying up late and talking about stuff, I every so often will just sort of get carried away and force them all to sit and listen to the last 45 seconds to a minute of the Across the Stars theme from episode two of Star Wars. And and it's the, a brilliant example of exactly what you're talking about. John Williams comes along and says, I have written enough themes connected to enough major characters that I can tell you the entire story of Anakin Skywalker's life Whoa. in 30 seconds. And it begins with a theme that he wrote for little boy Anakin way back in episode one and then moves to the love theme and then moves to the the death march, Vader's march. And you can you hear the whole story of his life in, in 30 seconds. It is spectacular hmm. and spine chilling. So I think it does. I think a, a really good composer is doing that when he sets out to write the score. It's interesting that the love theme for war and peace and the BBC one we're talking about, it, it's the same. It's Natasha's theme instead of there being a specific one for Andre and Natasha and for Pierre and Natasha. That's it's just point. Natasha's theme both times. That fits thematically that a little... with the purpose of her character so much. I was going to say, yeah. is it economy on the composer's part or is I don't that thematic? Think so. yeah. yeah, because yeah. there's also Andre's theme and Pierre's theme, and there's a lot of really beautiful tunes. But uh, I also, and this is something I've been chewing on, and maybe it'll come up again in How to Eat an Elephant, but Tolstoy is so good at writing women, as we've talked about, right? In Anna Karenina in particular. But in War and Peace, despite the brilliant characterizations of them in scenes and and the way that they're affecting people, I do think War and Peace is kind of about men. And I have wondered if Natasha doesn't disappear for three quarters of the novel because she's kind of not the point so much as Pierre and Andre and Napoleon are Mm -hmm. the point. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I wonder if that knows that too. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if that's why we subconsciously get frustrated. 
Yeah, but she does Long tie them five together. Five sixths of the way through. She's still yeah. the touch, the touchstone of the novel, though. But I think what Ian's saying is that she doesn't get enough attention. Right. The touchstone yeah. ought to be more central. Yes, <laughs> I do think that's true. Is for a guy, a guy that can write a a, a woman as compelling as Anna Karenina should have had more lines I'm of Natasha. Saying, I just got a little sport. distracted. Megan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How can you be distracted from Natasha? Oh She's one of the most compelling characters of all time. And he basically was like, mm, but historical, you know, philosophy. Natasha. Well, don't you think it's because Pierre was? He was distracted from Natasha for a good portion True. of the story. Ooh, that's a smart, uh, that's a smart well, well, I can't argue that with you. In- until later. So, you know. That's very, I think that's a great so comment. True. That's, wow. All right. All, <laughs> all right. right. You win. <laughs> I love to win. Ah, I know you do. <laughs> Eight episodes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you guys, thank you for your comments as usual. And that can we fun. just all heartily recommend that all of you listeners go and watch the War and Peace miniseries? This is the only topic on which I have ever said to someone, please go watch this before you read the great classic all-time great novel that it is based on. And I would say, I'll still say it now. You should go watch this first because it is only going to heighten your enjoyment of the And novel. it will provide you an amazing opportunity, ladies and gentlemen, to listen to the soundtrack while you read the book for two years, <laughs> which is what I have done. <laughs> Every time I open War and Peace time. to read it again, you hear those Russian men. <laughs> it's just like awesome. out of the pages, yes. like a music box exactly. that's open. <laughs> That's oh awesome. Uh, oh. Well, I, I totally agree with you. I think everybody should go watch it. And I just want to add, everybody should also go read it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you like, yeah, watching definitely. the movie Certainly. doesn't stand in the place of reading the book, but they complement one another. In this case, they really do. Agreed. All right, then. Well, thank you all for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for participating and listening along. Please drop us a line on any of our social media handles and let us know how we're doing. And let us know what book you'd like to hear us discuss in some future episode. And between now and then, we wish you all a grand evening and a happy reading. (laughs) Happy Happy reading. reading. Thank you for listening to Bibliophiles. We hope you'll stop by our Facebook page and let us know which miniseries adaptation is your favorite. We're always looking for good recommendations, especially this time of year. Believe it or not, our second official season is just about over. Next week, we'll be wrapping things up with a look back at all the things we've learned in the past nine weeks. We'll also be attempting to pitch our own ideas for film adaptations. Until then, happy reading, everyone.